The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Amen. Welcome to OPCC. Pray for all of you today. Molly is sitting up here with Shay. Shay has a hard time behaving. When Molly gets up here, this is bad. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Appreciate uh, Molly being up here and the enthusiasm she brings. Lots going on at the church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We'll jump into uh, some, some more cool stuff. Isn't it amazing how something can stir you up a little bit? And get you afraid. You don't like to, especially men, we don't like to think we're afraid. But really, it's, it's what happens. And they keep us up at night. And, and, uh, and so it's time to jam out again, all right? They, they're doing good, Molly. You've taught them well. They're down there jamming. Uh, and so, so, but you think in terms of, hey, you, you, you go to bed, man, and then you just toss and turn. And you're stirred up by something. You're worried by it. And it can keep you, steal your sleep away from you. And it, it steals a lot more. It can steal your joy uh, that, that the Lord like, expects for us to have as believers. And just rob us from that, the, those kinds of things. And so the, the Lord says in the Psalms, man, that he gives his beloved sleep to, to those whom he knows. And so that that's kind of gets us, when, when we're not able to sleep, man, we've got to figure out how to lay something at the feet of the Lord and keep laying it at the, at the feet of the Lord until we're able to get some sleep. Well, what's interesting about the book of Revelation is that it causes a great deal of confusion, and, and it also can evoke a lot of fear as we read it, and they're like, man, this, this is some scary-sounding stuff in here. And so it can kind of have that impact on us that it gets us stirred up and a little bit troubled. Just like things in the world right now, they seem real chaotic. And, and for me, they, they do get me stirred up. And I have to, I have to be reminded often of uh, who I serve and whom I belong to. And that those things really don't have any bearing on me. That the God that I worship and serve was around long before America was even an idea, okay? And so he'll be a, around a long after if, uh, if America goes away. The Lord will still be there. And, and so when we read Revelation, it can cause this, this same type of emotion in us, the same type of fear, the same type of, of confusion about things, and it should do neither. As a matter of fact, when John started writing it in the third verse, he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take, it to, take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So John says, we're blessed individuals, which kind of carries the connotation of some happy happiness spiritually, and, and even more than that, the favor of God falling on us. When we hear, when we read, when it's proclaimed, it has the power to do these things in us. And so we should understand, um, as we come to it and we understand it, it should evoke not fear and confusion. It should evoke from each one of us urgency and confidence. And so if we're feeling confused and fearful, the book is not doing what it's designed to do. And so as we go through it, man, and I teach you on it, it is not, it is not so that you would become an expert in prophecy. Like, that's not going to happen in this series, okay? You're not going to walk away from this series and go, I now understand prophecy in its fullness 
and I can articulate it and explain it to my coworkers. Don't try to do that, okay? This series is designed for us to look at some prophecy, some fulfilled, some yet coming, and to become confident, to become urgent about what the Lord has called us to do. And that's the blessing that it contains when it has the power to make us confident in our relationship with the Lord and make us urgent about the business of, of the kingdom. And, and so we need to, to really understand what the design of it is, is for. And so chapter 7 is kind of a cool chapter. It, it, uh, it's just before the seventh seal is opened. So we've gone through the six seals that have been, been opened, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and seals one, two, three, and four, and then we had the fifth and the sixth seal. <clears throat> and then there's an interlude, and there's kind of a pause, kind of like John says, or the Lord says to John, like, record this, give the brothers and sisters a break because we're about to even hit them harder. That's what's going on. And... Um, and so, the, but it really is answering a question of how chapter six ends. Like chapter six, it goes through these four horsemen of the apocalypse, this famine, this death, this, this war and pestilence. And then it ends in, in, in chapter six with the people calling, the people who do not know the Lord, <clears throat> fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb which is kind of crazy. You know, when you think of a lamb, you don't think of wrath. It says, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Remember, the lamb is shifting from an age of grace to an age of judgment. The lion or the lamb of God is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says, for great, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can withstand it? So when the wrath of God that is not very popular to talk about, but it is so important for a, um, a, a holistic approach to a theology of who Christ is, you can't just talk about the grace of God because wrath is all over the Bible and the wrath of God is so vitally important for us to not only um, know about, but to embrace. It's important for you to embrace the wrath of God. And people don't wanna do that. Um, people don't want to talk about, um, you'll hear this kind of rhetoric about, well, I just don't understand how a loving God could do that. When the truth of the matter is, is logically, not logistically, but logically, when you play this out, a loving God must have wrath or he can't really be loving. It has to be there. If, If the wrath side of God is not there, he can no longer be holy. Because holiness means that he is wholly set apart and different from us. He's not anything like us, not, nothing at all. Like we, we can relate to one another because we're, we, have, we share in a fallenness, right? And so we all understand what it means to, to blow it, to mess up. The Lord doesn't understand that. He doesn't blow it. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't sin. What is sin? Here's what sin is when you boil it down. It is a departure from the will of God. So it is a departure from all that he is, all that he has taught us, all, that, all of his um, attributes. It's a departure from that. It is a rebelling against it. That's what constitutes sin, whether it be that we just choose to ignore what he's asked us to do 
or whether it be that we plunge into something that we know is completely offensive, not only to God, but to those that we live in society around us. And the reason that it's unacceptable to them is, is, is because it, they're made in the image of God. And, and they know, we all know, even the word ought, you ought not do that. Why not? Where does that word come from? Ought. That is a very sound argument for the existence of God, the moral argue, argument. You ought not do that. I come up and slap you in the face and you say, you ought not do that. What if I feel like I should? You know, you say, well, the word ought tells us that there's something written on our hearts. It is the moral law that we know there are things we shouldn't do. Where does that come from? The dog doesn't think I ought not bite you when you try to get his food. He thinks I ought to bite you, right? <laughs> and so when we think in these terms, it's like this is what makes us different in all of creation is that we have the moral law of God written on our hearts. And so um, when we get to this idea of the wrath of God, like it's, it's really important for us. And it's not something, it's not something that makes us, it, it should not make us afraid of God. It should not make us, like the wrath of God does not make me feel like I cannot approach God. As a matter of fact, it even blows me away more that I get to approach him because I understand that it is there. So therefore, I understand the incredible mercy that is being shed on my life. And I can come in humility as I know that there's nothing in my own standing and power that deserves to talk to the God and the creator of the universe. It is totally based upon everything that Jesus did. And so I'm humbled in that moment. So the wrath of God is so important for me to have a relationship with Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus becomes my servant. And he serves me to take away my sin and not tell me what to do. See, he's Lord and Savior. And so as we look at this, man, like the wrath of God is a real important understanding of the teaching of the Bible that the church has departed away from because there was a time historically in the last 50 years, maybe 60, 70 years, where the wrath was of God and the whole turn or burn mentality was pushed so hard that it was using fear to manipulate people to come into the kingdom. And it got a little imbalanced. And, and so then what we did is is people said, man, that's not what we should be doing. And so we, the pendulum swung way over here to where it was turn or burn, all about wrath and hell. And now it's swung way over here, and it's all about grace. No, nothing about consequences. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to be right here and follow me. You need to be close enough to hear what I'm teaching. You need to be close enough to understand what I'm calling you to walk out in obedience. And this is why they would say, may the dust of the rabbi be all over me. That you're walking so close behind the rabbi that as he takes a step and the dust comes up, it's getting on you and you're listening to everything that's coming out of his mouth. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. They follow me. They listen. They do what I ask of them. And so we see this is so vitally important for us to be in a position where we understand um, both sides of of or all sides of who God is and his grace, his mercy, and his wrath. And so in this, this um, particular chapter, as we get into chapter 7, it's answering the question of chapter 6, 
Who can withstand the wrath of God and the Lamb? That's an important question. Can it be withstood? And so we look at chapter 7, and John tells us, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Now, let me just pause right here and throw some apologetics out. Sometimes people will take this verse and they'll try to say, see, you can't trust the Bible because even they believe that the world was flat. Wrong. <laughs> this is, when it says the four corners of the earth, that's like the four points of the compass. It's a figure of speech. If that, if, so when a person tries, it's like a person might try to trip you up on that and they think they got you. You just simply ask them, well, why do you say the sun sets? The sun doesn't set. We just say it sets. <laughs> like we revolve around the sun. The sun doesn't rise and set. It's a figure of speech in our day and age, and that's the way this was in this particular context. He says, then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. <clears throat> he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of, of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So we go from 144,000 to a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they circle, or they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. So even the angels are joining in in the celebratory worship of the salvation of God. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. And let me just, let me just kind of exegete, explain a little bit of it. First of all, we got two groups. We got 144,000 of the different tribes of Israel. 
Now, what's unique about this is this is the only time the tribes of Israel are listed in this order. The tribes of Israel are listed throughout the Bible in several different times. And this time, they, are, they include um, some that are left out of the other um, uh, lists. And so there's a whole fascinating study about um, the reasoning behind that. And then we have this great multitude that is identified as those who have come out of the uh, great tribulation. And they are uh, among that multitude as people from every tribe and nation that has ever uh, existed. And so these people, now I'm not going to go back through this, all right? You say, what is all that you got behind you? Well, if you don't know what that is, you weren't here last week and you need to go do your makeup work, all right? It's online. But I taught through the different views that when you approach Revelation, there are different ways to approach it. And I said, look, man, I kind of have an eclectic approach where I borrow from all of these different views. I'm not, I don't have certainty around any of them. And, and you're not wrong, okay? So there's liberty and in interpretation around these things. Um, we're not dealing with essentials on how this plays out. And so we saw that, man, they all have one thing in common for sure, that they all believe that things are going to get bad before they get better, and they all believe that Jesus is returning and judgment's going to happen when he returns. And so when we come to these two people groups, it's important to, like, I'm going to give you kind of a survey of how do you identify who these groups are? Well, it depends on where you fall in, in, in this camp. And there's really two main ways to identify them. One is if you're kind of over in this premillennial school, these 144,000, that, that number is literal. And you believe it's 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And you believe, generally, this is the, the people who believe in the rapture, that the church is raptured out and the, then the tribulation starts. And during this tribulation, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be preaching the gospel. And, and people will get saved during this seven-year tribulation period. That great multitude that is talked about is people who are saved during that tribulation time. And so the church is raptured out. These Jewish evangelists are selected and sealed with uh, uh, the seal of God, and they go forth preaching the gospel. And then people from all over, all different countries, even other Jewish people, end up accepting the gospel of Christ and getting saved during the time of the tribulation. The difference between the multitude and this idea... <laughs> I know I'm talking slower, but this is hard, man. This is hard stuff. The difference between the multitude and the Jewish evangelists, in this, if you espouse to this, this school of interpretation, is that the Jewish evangelists will not be harmed, and they will go through the tribulation right into the, into the millennium. The multitude of, tri, uh, of tribulation saints can be harmed during the tribulation and die. And that's why they're pictured as being before the throne of God. Okay? Everybody got it? Raise your hand if that's clear. A few of you are like, "What? Well, I don't understand what you're talking about. Not going to matter here in a minute. <laughs> okay, so the other way, really kind of, this, this view up here, which I think is a really strong view, is called amillennialism. And it, it teaches that we are living in the millennium right now. We are living in the tribulation right now. We are living in the church age right now. 
There is no rapture. When Jesus comes back, it's over. Okay? So this view would make that interpretation on that particular part of the text and say, the 144,000 is symbolic, just like the other numbers are symbolic. And, and like the, the four horsemen don't mean literally four guys riding on horses, right? It's symbolic of something. So they would take the 144,000, which is a multiple uh, of um, the 12, and it, it carries in apocalyptic literature. This is consistent. It carries the idea of completeness. And they would say the 144,000 are all Christians and that it's not Jewish evangelists that the church is the new Israel right now in the church age. And so they, the church is spiritual Israel right now. And so they believe that there will be, before the return of Christ, a massive revival of Jewish people. There will be a turning of the Jewish nation. Many of them will turn to Christ and believe and re recognize that, that as a nation 2,000 years ago, they did crucify the Messiah, and they will, re they will return to him. Okay? Everybody got that? All right. The good news is, either way, there should be no fear. Whether or not it's this idea over here and they're Jewish evangelists that come and they preach during the times that things get really difficult, or whether or not it's all of us right now and it's even talking about us and talking about the church. The good news is when we approach the book of Revelation, we should not have any fear. And there are some takeaways from this text that ensure that we should not be afraid when all of these things start to play out as they are going to play out. You say, well, when are they gonna play out? I don't know. Jesus said, he, he said, no man knows. That is up to God. Could they be beginning to play out right now? They could. It's crazy right now. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? It is crazy. Okay? So I, I thought that it was crazy when I first really started following the Lord. I thought times were crazy, okay? Things, things morally were starting to get crazy. It is nothing compared to what it is right now. Like, when I was, when I was 18, man... Um, geez, to, compared to right now, I just shake my head. I'm like, what is going on? And so Jesus said, man, the beginning of the birth pains is how you know when we're approaching the days prior to his coming. So we could be living in those times. And so that makes a person kind of perk up and go, well, if we're living in those times and it, and it really is near for us in our generation, it could happen, man, I want to be ready, don't you? Like, I don't want to be afraid, I want to be doing all that the Lord has called me to do. Here's the takeaways that I have for you today, and I think they're really encouraging. The first one is the Lord is in control. These four, rep four winds represent the final judgment of God. They're being held back. And so even though we watch the news and we look at things and it's morally, people are, it feels like culturally as a, as a country um, that we are morally bankrupt and, and it can be discouraging and we worry about Man, how could, like, how, what kind of world are my kids going to grow up in? And I find myself thinking sometimes, I mean, like, man, well, this is getting bad. It's getting really bad, and it seems to be getting bad really quick. But let's see, I'm 51, so average age of a man, 77, 80, I don't know what it is. I got 20. It's probably going to be okay before I die. <laughs> but my kids, man, my kids. They got their whole lives ahead of them. And so it can start to make you feel like, golly, what kind of world are they going to grow up in? 
What's going to happen for them? And, and, and what's going to happen for, for grandkids, for those of us that end up having grandkids or already have them? We, we worry about these things, and we need to be reminded that the Lord is in control. He's the one holding back the four winds of judgment. And world events should never overwhelm us with anxiety. They should motivate us with urgency. We should not be afraid. Like when we see things getting like this, we need to be more urgent about understanding who we are in Christ. We need to be more urgent and intentional with the conversations that we're having with the people that we're doing life with. We need to quit being afraid of, am I going to offend somebody if they find out I know Jesus? Yeah, you're going to offend Jesus if you keep your mouth shut. That's what you need to be thinking about. And this, so like when I, when I read this, and just being honest, when I'm studying the book of Revelation, it's challenging to me. It's convicting. It's helping me be more intentional. It's helping me be more bold. It's helping me be what I'm supposed to be. And I think that's what the book is designed to do. And that's why it says it comes with a blessing if we do it, because when we know we're walking in the will of God in that, and we know we're having those intentional conversations, and we know we're walking in obedience and we're reflecting the light of Christ, it does something inside of us for ourselves souls. And so we need to be reminded that we should not fear anything. We don't fear him who can kill the body. Rather, we fear him who can kill the body and the soul. And our fear is a reverence for him, knowing that he's coming back, that judgment is going to fall on this planet. And right now, living in the church age, wherever you fall in line of this interpretation, is you're supposed to be the church. And the job of the church is to spread the good news to tell the gospel so that people can come to a place where they receive forgiveness and they escape this awful day. Who can withstand this day? Well, first of all, we need to know the Lord is in control. Here's the second thing. The Lord knows his own. That's the second takeaway. Here's this something interesting. I don't believe this is a literal seal on the forehead. And I, I, I don't believe the mark of the beast is a literal seal on your forehead or your forearm. If it was, what fool would say, yep, yeah, put it right there? Like, that's not how it's gonna go down, okay? And so, world, like when we look at this, God's people are marked by his spirit, and therefore they should not fear. So look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Now, there's several different passages of Scripture I could share with you that teach the same thing. But, but here's, here's a very strong one. Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, a promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so we, we look and we go, man, here's the most important thing about our existence. Have we been sealed with the seal of God so that we are protected whatever it is that we may face. And that seal is not a, like it's not, like this number 666 and this seal on the, on the, uh, on the saints of God, it's not to be interpreted liber- literally, it's to be, in, 
to be interpreted and understand this is a picture of the human heart. Either a person has accepted Jesus as the Messiah, their sins have been forgiven and they are walking in covenant relationship with him, or they have rejected him and they are walking in unbelief and they are sealed. That's why we look at men, these pictures are all over the Bible. Remember, Pharaoh's heart was sealed and it just kept getting harder and harder. It was sealed in unbelief. And so it's either sealed in belief or it's sealed in unbelief. And when it is sealed in belief, nothing can harm us because God knows we are sealed in him. And so our urgency is to see people sealed with the spirit. And so the question becomes, how? Like, oh, I want to make sure my kids are sealed. Maybe you've got young kids and you're like, geez, man, I want my kids to be sealed. So you might be thinking, well, I need to get them baptized, Okay. I need to get them baptized and baptized and they'll be sealed. Your kids would no more be sealed with the mark of God if they got baptized than if I loaded them in the back of my Sierra and went through the Green Lantern car wash. That does not seal them. What seals them is when they are, like that, that baptism is a proclamation that I have the seal of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And there's been a lot of confusion in the church taught around this, but we can see that people believe, they repent, they believe the Spirit of God is in them, and they follow in baptism. They, they follow him in, in That's why all of the ones in the book of Acts, they said, were well, you baptized? And said, so, well, we only heard of John's baptism, and they were baptized again after they received the Spirit because they had to be corrected in what they were doing. They were, it was kind of religious beforehand. They had to know about Jesus. They had to accept Jesus. The Spirit of God had to enter their life. And so the sealed, how do we get sealed? The sealed have been washed in the blood. That's how you get sealed, okay? It's not getting wet in a tank or having somebody sprinkle water over you. It is being washed in the blood of Christ. Salvation belongs to God alone. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so God and the lamb, Jesus, are pictured as the same. And salvation belongs to them. And and it is received only by those who have been washed. Look at verse 14. I answered, sir, you know who these people in white robes are. And the white robes indicate and symbolize righteousness. He says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The only way to be sealed with the mark of God is to be washed in the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. That's why it was shed. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is that blood that um, is washes over us. You say, well, it, again, that's not literal. Like, I've never bathed in blood. But my sins are covered in the blood. We go back to Adam and Eve. They sinned, they did what God did not want them to do, which is what all sin is. They departed and, and they became aware of their nakedness. They felt ashamed. They were marred by sin. And God came to um, walk with them and they were found out as they were hiding. And, and what does God do? He says, look, there are going to be consequences for the sin that you've committed. That's just the way it is. And death entered the picture. And you know what the first thing that died was? An animal. 
You know what the animal was used to do? Was to make a covering for the people, Adam and Eve, so that they would not be ashamed of their nakedness. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. All throughout the Bible, you will see this picture of the sacrifice. When they were led out of the bondage of um, Egypt, when they became a nation, right before they received the law from God, they had grown in excess to millions of people. Moses leads them out, and the last great plague was the angel of death was going to come through, and the firstborn was going to die, and God told them to make that sacrifice of that lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house, go in there, eat that meal, and when I come by, I will pass over you when I see the blood. So for thousands of years, God has been screaming this picture to humanity through the nation of Israel. And so Jesus comes, and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he comes and he willingly dies on the cross of Calvary and he sheds his blood, though he is not guilty. And so we have no fear if we have been washed in the blood of God because the Spirit is a guarantee of all that we will inherit. And so my faith can grow because I have the Spirit in me who helps me to understand the Word and continues to guarantee me when I get anxious about the things that I can see with my physical eyes, the Holy Spirit reminds me to walk by faith and not by sight and to recognize all of my inheritance is out of, in front of me and the world can't touch me because I belong to Him. And so somehow I'm able to think about that for a moment and calm my nerves down and get that anxiety to kind of calm down and say, wait a minute, Lord, I belong to you. And before long, that I'm asleep again, okay? Whatever may be troubling me. So as I read the book of Revelation, I see myself, man, I'm on the right side of this thing because I have been washed in the blood of the lamb. Now, here's something that's interesting. I think sometimes we say the Lord saves us from our sins. No, he doesn't. He does not. There are always consequences for your sins. Like when you sin, you will pay the consequences from them. The Lord forgives you from, for your sins, and he saves you from what? His wrath. That's the picture. The wrath of God is coming upon the entire world, and the only ones who will escape it who have been forgiven of their sins. The Lord has forgiven them of their sins, so now they appear unblemished and spotless, so the holy God can allow them to come into his presence, and therefore he can retain his holiness because they've been covered by the blood of the Lamb, and their sins have been washed away, and the wrath of God doesn't have to fall on them because they accepted the fact that all of the wrath of God fell on Jesus as he hung on the cross as the Lamb of God. The, the wrath that I deserve fell on Jesus already. Okay, and so now I'm sealed with the Spirit simply because I have received Christ. Now here's where it gets even cooler. The last takeaway is God will shelter us. Verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That word is tabernacle. He tabernacles with us. This picture is also all throughout the Bible. When Moses led the people of Israel out of that bondage from Egypt and that he was receiving from God, he would go out into this thing that was called the tent of meeting. And he would meet with God. 
And God, the people would watch, man, and the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God would descend down upon that tent. And, and that is tabernacling. God was tabernacling with Moses. And Moses would come out, who was kind of a picture of Christ. He was not Christ. He was a prophet, right? But he was giving us a foreshadowing of all that the Messiah would do. Moses would come out, and his face would be glowing, like it would, it would have such an impact on him that the, the Israelites said, man, we can't even stand to look at you because we feel the guilt of our shame. Put a veil on your face, Moses. And so Moses started to veil his face because it was so convicting as God tabernacled with Moses. Okay? We get to the New Testament, and Jesus constantly says something greater than Moses is here. Something greater than what, Moses was the big dude, man, the big Mo. He's the dude in the Old Testament. And Jesus says something as greater is here. Because the one who tabernacled with Moses was Jesus. And so he comes and he dies on the cross of Calvary. And then we have this incredible passage in John chapter 15. And he says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. He's saying, If you will seek to tabernacle with me, I will come down and tabernacle with you. I will walk with you, and I will enable you to be all that I want you to be. And in that, we see that God begins to meet with us, and he begins to walk with us so that we are prepared, whether we're in the church age, the tribulation, or we're going on into the millennium, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's going to be Jewish evangelists, because we already ought to be evangelists. You know what I mean? That's what we are. And so the more we tabernacle with God, the more that it will come out of us. And it says that he shelters us. He tabernacles with us. And then verse 16 says that never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is a picture of our very desire being satisfied, our deepest need being fixed. If you are a believer and you keep pursuing the things of the world, your desire will never be satisfied. If you are a believer who has been sealed with the Spirit, the only thing that will bring satisfaction and fullness in your life is tabernacling with Jesus. Doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter how many trips you take, it doesn't matter how many promotions you get, how many things that you do to make your house nice, and if you get new furniture from Nebraska Furniture Mart, the only thing that will satisfy you is tabernacling with Jesus. And if you tabernacle with Jesus and you get some new furniture, you are one happy person, all right? And so that's the objective, man, is the Lord wants to tabernacle with us and uh, for us to recognize our satisfaction is fulfilled in him and all these other things are secondary. And the big idea is the shepherd leads spiritually now and physically then. Remember, in the Old Testament, everything precedes physically what will happen spiritually. In the New Testament, everything um, spiritually precedes what's going to be happening physically to the kingdom of God. And so God will actually, right now, Jesus walks with us spiritually. He, again, when we, in the future, will walk with us physically. Right now, we see dimly, Paul says, but when he comes, we will see clearly. We shall all be changed. 
in the twinkling of an eye as we shall be with him. Okay, so this is fascinating stuff. All right. It's the already that we're experiencing and the not yet that will come in the future. And that's why it's so important for us to abide in the Lord is because these spiritual things precede the physical things during the age of grace. And when we abide, we have no fear. And I want to share something with you that I think is really powerful. You should read it out of Romans chapter 8. In light of everything I've just taught out of the book of Revelation. This is what the Apostle Paul says. This <laughs> is good. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live according, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also share in his glory. Come on, man. What are you upset about, man? What are you upset about? What's got you down? What gets you discouraged? You're an heir of God. You're a child of the king. The spirit of God lives in you. What can come against you? Neither death, nor life, no principality. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. 
We thank you for the encouragement of your word, for the seal of the spirit that we can have confidence that we know you, that we don't know about you. We know you, Lord. You have transformed us. You have taken our sin away and saved us from all we deserve. I love you, Lord, and I thank you for these good people that I get to do life with, to do ministry with, and I'm excited about what you're doing, Lord, and how you're using us as a suburb in the city of transformation. Lord, let people move in to this subdivision and find life and turn away from death. May their desire be satisfied as they recognize that they are sinners who stand in need of a Savior, and they are forgiven and transformed and marked by your Holy Spirit and made priests of God to go set the world on fire. We love you. I thank you for each person here, Lord. If there's somebody that doesn't know you and needs to receive you, Lord, help them to take that step of faith whether it be coming forward and praying or, or just, just, just praying in their chair or saying that to someone that they, they need to talk about it, Lord. Give them the courage to take that step so that they can experience what it is like to be sealed and marked by you. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.